hello everybody my name is Casey and it's been a minute and my name is Zach and yeah it has been a while anyway we're celluloid jam aka, AKA 2020, 2020 the worst year in movies but today we're not here about, uh, to talk about movies from 2020 we're here to talk about movies from 2022 namely our favorite movies and it's pretty much the opposite of 2020 namely because 2022 was such a great year for movies so many good movies that we couldn't narrow it down to a top 10 or even a top 15 uh, we decided to do a top 20! 20. 20-0. So, there's the 20. 20 for you. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one, that's a good one. This is our top 20 films of 2022. So we're gonna get right into it, but before we do, we just wanna do a quick shout out to some of our honorable mentions that didn't quite make the list. Um, these didn't make either of our lists, so if you're wondering like, oh, where is Top Gun Maverick? It's not coming up, so we're just gonna get all those out of the way right now. Uh, so yes, not going to appear, but movies we still thought were good. These are our honorable mentions. Top Gun Maverick, The Menu, Pearl, Bodies, 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 3,000 Years of Longing, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Weird, The Ali Yankovic Story, Ambu Lance, The Bob's Burgers Film, and Jackass Forever. All great movies that we recommend you watch, but just didn't quite make the cut for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I love so many of those, but there are just 20 other movies that I love even more than all of those. There are also movies that are not going to appear on this list just because we still haven't seen them. Like we said, it was a great year for movies, and we just couldn't find time to see them all. <laughs> uh, and some of those movies in, uh, that we want to see uh, but still haven't seen yet include After Yang, Women Talking, Decision to Leave, and the documentary Fire of Love. All movies we want to see, just haven't seen them yet. Let's go ahead and get started. My 20th favorite film of the year was Death on the Nile. The crime is murder. The murderer is one of you. I love a whodunit. And I just thought this was a very gorgeous film to look at. I think a, people, a lot of people were laughing at it right out of the gate because he got Gal, Gal Gadot saying in the trailer, we'll have enough, enough champagne to fill the Nile. You know, that got some laughs and the cast just seemed cursed as well. Um, but overall, I think it's a pretty good movie. I love a whodunit. I love an Agatha Christie film. I love Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot cinematic universe. And I think it's worth a watch. Don't let the haters get you down. Death on the Nile is pretty good. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I haven't seen the original Murder on the Orient Express from 2017. Um... There were definitely parts of it that were left to be desired. I am in the camp of thinking that Gal Gadot's way of pronouncing that key quote is funny. Um, I thought it was a solid movie. Yeah, uh, really, really loved watching it. Love that we get to see it in 70 millimeter as well. When we yeah, saw it. yeah, we did see it in 70 millimeter. So that added to the fact. Uh, to the gorgeousness aspect of it. Like it looked really good when we saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what's your number 20? My number 20 is Defunct Land's Disney Channel theme, A History Mystery. This is the Disney Channel theme. The theme comprises four notes. Four notes that debuted in the early 2000s. 
four notes that dominated through the network's rise and peak in popularity. Now you might be thinking, Zach, why are you putting a YouTube video in the lead with so many other great films that you're going to cover? Well, you haven't seen the YouTuber Defunctland then, who really does, he started out making um, solid uh, recaps and coverages of theme park attractions and very niche pieces of theme park and Disney history, but he has just grown so much as a documentarian. I have not seen all of the Fast Pass, the mm -hmm. Fast Pass documentary, but his defunct land, namely on just trying to figure out who made the theme to the Disney Channel, dun, 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 is spellbinding. It's gripping. It's so emotional because you learn about that entire. Um, 2002 to 2007's just how they branded the channel. It's a super interesting documentary, and if you have any attachment to that era of Disney Channel, I highly recommend it. And you can currently watch that Disney Channel theme documentary on YouTube. I've seen clips of it from what you've shown me, and yeah, it was pretty, it's very good. It has some real like shocking moments. It also pulls a lot of clips from Disney Channel that I obviously like. I had forgotten about, but that I watched a million times <laughs> when they were actually airing on Disney Channel. So that was always in very interesting. And yeah, I hope this guy does more stuff. Seems like he's releasing a documentary like every, what, year, every other year or mm -hmm. so now. <laughs> so good on him. Good on him. All right, moving on to number 19. Zach, do you want to start us off with number 19? Yes, I am going to say that my number 19 is Robert Eggers' The Northman, a gorgeous drama packed with so much world building, great performances, um, some, oh man, just uh, the images that come here are so, they've stuck with me this entire year. We, we last watched it, it must have been in April, and Robert Eggers, he just keeps this, this train of greatness rolling. He started out with The Witch, went on to The Lighthouse, and this just is his largest movie so far, and it's not for everybody because it really does want it to be authentic, like an authentic Norse story, or what would you, Norse story, or would you? Yeah, like, Viking what? story, yeah, it's about the Vikings of, you know, Scandinavia, somewhere Norway, Sweden, who knows where they are, but mm -hmm. yeah, that general area. And it really prides itself on feeling authentic, and mm -hmm. it doesn't, if you are not one for this kind of linguistic lingo, then you are out cold, but... It is a fantastic epic of a movie, and I feel like that's going to be a trend with a lot of the movies that I talk about. I loved it. I loved The Northman. Yeah, very violent movie with great performances that I do worry are going to be overlooked at the Oscars this year just because it came out so early in the year, but mm. I think it was very good as well. Anyway, moving on to my number 19. My number 19 is Barbarian. <laughs> Barbarian is a masterclass in horror. <laughs> Hello? Barbarian is a crazy movie. It's a horror film. Um, when I tell people to watch it, they're always like, oh, I've heard mixed things. And I'm like, no, who's saying they didn't like it? This is objectively just a fun ride, horror movie, also very funny. I don't want to spoil anything about it. But yeah, great. If you, For those of you who don't know, though, Barbarian is a film about a woman who goes to stay in an Airbnb and then she, when she gets there, she finds that there is a man there. And the man's played by 
Bill Skarsgård, known for playing creeps, so you're obviously on edge immediately, but things don't go the way you expect. And it just is, it's an insane movie, it's a fun movie, scary movie. It actually was in sometimes too scary for me. <laughs> but just a great piece of cinema. Would recommend, would recommend. Yeah, I love how both our 19s had a Skarsgård in it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Northman starred Alexander Skarsgård. And Barbarian has Bill. Oh, Bill. Oh, Pennywise. I love that little freak. Yeah, he is... He, he. I think he's simultaneously, like, the best-looking one and also the creepiest one. Mm-hmm. But if he was just in movies that weren't creepy, would I still think that? I don't know. I don't know. Could you, could you see him, like, being the lead in a rom-com? I think if Barbarian proved anything, yes. <laughs> yes, I could. My number 18 is... The Banshees of Inishirin. Woo! Ooh, those Irish fellas. You know what you used to be? No, what did I used to be? Nice! And now, do you know what you are? Not nice. Yes, it's a, it's a very Irish film. That's very Irish guys. And there's a great, I don't know if it was a Letterboxd review or a great tweet that I saw that was like, it took me about 30 minutes into the Banshees of Inishirin to realize that it was a period piece. I thought that's what it's just like over there right now. Same, same. I also didn't even realize it was a period piece it's super until timeless. deep into yeah. the film. <laughs> uh, the Banshees of Inishirin is a movie about two Irish friends who just have a very sudden falling out for no clear reason, um, at least on the side of Colin Farrell. Um, so they just are, you know, it's most about him trying to repair the friendship and the other guy really not wanting it. Um, and it's a fun, another movie that's just funny and it was also like very human. It's a very human story. Mm-hmm. It's, 100%. It's very Irish. Mm-hmm. What else has that director done? Mark, Martin McDonough. Mm-hmm. He's made, uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, seven psychopaths. I have I've only ever seen Three Billboards, which is a super American movie, mm-hmm. and he really does just find the humanness and raw emotion of simple little tasks. I didn't care for Seven Psychopaths, and I haven't seen Three Billboards. But if this is all I have to go off, I say you know, good good director, man, good job. Yeah. Why aren't you talking to Paul no more? That wouldn't be a sin, though, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? My number 18 is Gaspar Noé's Vortex. Je n'arriverai pas à m'occuper bien de vous, papa. Je veux pas laisser cette maison. A film about an elderly couple, one stricken with dementia, and the way that it is filmed is that it is split screen for about 90% of the movie, focusing on the actions of the elderly man and his elderly wife the wife who has dementia, and it's the last couple of days of their life together. It's not a fun movie to watch, but I really, really admire the craft that it took to make it. Also, the elderly man is played by Jalo 70s horror director Dario Argento. Oh, wow. And he's really good in the movie. Um, he really is just this, you find out that he's cheating on his wife, even at like age 90, which is probably the biggest moment of disbelief. Like, how could this dude still be carrying? And overall, it's a very, very sad movie. It is not for the faint of heart. But if you 
like Argento movies or you like Gaspar Noé, he made the movie Climax and Enter the Void. Super polarizing director. Um, I'd say it's worth a watch. It's his lightest movie that I've seen hmm. from him. I've never seen a Gaspar Noé film, and I don't know if I will. But listeners, if you like weird movies, listen to Zach. Alrighty, what's your 17? My number 17 is Avatar, The Way of Water, directed by James Cameron, a sequel to 2009's Avatar. It follows the continuing adventures of Jake Sully and his blue Navi wife, Natiri, and you learn about their family. If you weren't attached or you don't have a fondness for the original, I'd still say it's worth checking out on the big screen. You might not get a lot out of it because you still have to kind of um, deal with these characters. I would say their kids are interesting enough. The new characters that it has, I don't want to give too much away because I feel like right out the gate there are so many weird surprises from this weird movie. James Cameron is famous for taking big swings and rarely does he miss. I love how this movie turns into a key whale movie. Not Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser's The Whale, but a more popular whale movie. It really does transform, does somersaults. I'd say the last act of this movie had me on the edge of my seat. I needed to see where this was going. Uh, the three hours flew by. Uh, really, really great time. Really great time at the movies. Yeah. I don't think you can really spoil Avatar, The Way of the Water. Um, I don't really feel like there are any huge reveals or twists in the film. I think you know what you're going to get going in, but it's still cool. Like, it's still a great film. Um, I'd say just how they bring not only key actors, but key characters back. And even you figure out what Sigourney Weaver's doing here, and I just think that is so wild. Well, I don't even think necessarily you would know Sigourney Weaver is there unless somebody told you. For those of you who haven't seen the film and you aren't like aware of the backstory, Sigourney Weaver is in the movie again playing a teenage girl, a teenage Navi. And I didn't realize this until we were watching the trailer one day. And I was like, why does that one sound so adult? Like, why does she doesn't sound like a kid? Why does she sound like an adult? And then Zach was like, because that's Sigourney Weaver. But even that, you know, you can know going in if you're reading up on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bizarre choice that somehow works. Still don't understand yet the meaning of that. Maybe we'll get more info on whatever is going on there (laughs) in the third movie (laughs) in 10 years but (laughs) for now for now i was just like yeah weird choice but it's working Mm -hmm. uh i also enjoyed avatar uh a good film good film jake we must protect the people wherever we go this family is our fortress and you're 17? My number 17 is RRR. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. Not salsa, not flamenco, my brother. Do you know? Natu? What is Natu? Polam gattu dummulo na potla gitta duki nattu polera majatara lo potarajushina. So RRR is a Bollywood action flick uh and as with many the oh action flicks from bollywood there's also uh a lot of like musical music and a very very fun dance number 
Um, in a lot of ways, it puts all of our action films and our musicals to shame in one single film. Like, in, by our, I mean American. Uh, because, yeah, such creative, such creative violence. Such creative violence. And then also the dance sequence uh, at the party with the suspenders was just so good. Um, had a lot of fun with it. And yeah, it's on Netflix. So anybody can watch it whenever. It's very good. Yeah. So my number 16 is Turning Red. Turning Red is a movie about like a young, like tween to teenager-ish girl who lives in Canada. And she finds out that the women in her mom's side of the family turn into red pandas. Um, and just sort of the adventure that goes along with that. Uh, a very fun film that I think one of the things I liked about it the most is how much it captures what it's really like to be a 12 year old girl, basically. Um, I think that, you know, she's not a cool girl. She's a very nerdy, very, very obsessive tween. Like she's absolutely obsessed with this boy band. And I think at that age, like, we all were obsessed with all of our little things. And I think she was just a very, very relatable character. Um, and I feel like the people who didn't like the movie, for the most part, were probably men who just couldn't relate to yeah. <laughs> to yeah. a, like a character like that. And I think it just goes back to tracing back to like the hatred of Twilight back in yeah. the day. Hating things that teenage girls like and hating things that yeah, like young girls like just because that is the fan base for it and this was a movie about that type of girl who is the kind of person to be obsessed with these kind of things and i just felt like the hate for the movie sort of mirrored the hate for the thing the obsessions that girls are obsessed with i don't know anyway i thought it was good and yeah. i think it's a good movie i think that it should have gone to theaters too isn't that crazy how we saw trailers for it last mm, year yeah and then they're and then it was like a last minute decision to put it on Disney Plus, which is so weird to me. I, I'm really confident that movie could have been a wonderful hit. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't even realize it wasn't in theaters. I didn't realize it hadn't been. Because weren't we watched in theaters, but I guess we didn't. Uh, my number 16 is The House. It's an animated film on Netflix, an anthology stop motion horror story which are three buzzwords for me to where I love it. Anthology horror and stop motion. I'm going to put a little dash in between stop and motion, but this was made, I feel like, for a person like me. Uh, we were talking recently about stop motion, too, and how you, you were just like, ah, I don't like how stop motion movies are weird. They're all weird. Yes, I... I think you asked, like, what is your favorite stop motion movie? And there's a lot of them that I like, but none that I, you know, like, oh, I love this because I've, I, like I said, all stop motion movies to me are always just weird. They always just have to be about weird things like Coraline, great movie, but it's weird. Paranorman, great movie, but it's weird and off putting. Before... Nightmare Before Christmas, off putting and weird. <laughs> Uh, you know, again, I like these movies, but it's just like Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride probably is my favorite. Again, just weird though. They always have to be weird. Like, why? Why can't we ever get like a normal claymation story? <laughs> I feel like you just get so much creative freedom and expression with stop motion because um, it's one thing about a person going and tracing something so many times per frame, or somebody at a computer animating a computer image, but you just get that 
level of intimacy of a person who's literally playing with their toys for a working day, making them move at 24 frames a second by like inch and inch. And let me get to talking about the house. This is just became a tyrant on my <laughs> stop motion. Uh, the house it follows three stories that all take place in this house through different, not only uh, times and generations of families that live here, but also other other different species because it follows three different stories, uh, ghost stories that take place within a house. One about two daughters who just moved into this house and their family slowly becomes more animalistic and scary and morphed. The next movie or the next story is about a man trying to sell the house except he is an animal? I don't even remember what animal he is at the moment, but it just becomes more and more decayed with different insects. And the final story is about cat people, about a woman who the house is growing beyond her. It's very well-made, well-crafted. I think the first story is the strongest and the scariest. It's, I mean, it really does make a testament to what you were saying about stop-motion movies being weird and creepy. But I just love it. I love it so much. Um, you can currently watch it on Netflix and would make a great double feature with the movie Monster House. Mm. What's your number 15? My number 15 is Turning Red. Whoop, whoop, whoop. From Disney Pixar. What's happening to me? This little quirk runs in our family. Yes! No! We just, or you just talked about that movie, and I'm going to say, yeah, it's a story about a young girl who finds out she's a red panda. You get well, a lot she isn't a red, she isn't a red panda. She transforms into a red yes. panda, yes. Um, <laughs> she's not like, just like, oh. I'm a red panda. I'm a, I've been a red panda this whole time. <laughs> um, I think it has a wonderful, uh, like you said, captures that era of teenage girl that even though I couldn't relate to it, I still had a great time watching May and her friends. They're very energetic. The whole movie has an energetic energy to it. I absolutely love the boy band in the movie. They're a perfect... Four Town. Four Town. They're a perfect homage to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, that specific era. And their song, um, Nobody... Oh man, what is it called? Nobody But You. Nobody But You. And it was one of my lo most listened songs on Spotify. Uh, really great. It's on Disney+. Plus. It feels like a film that only the director of the movie, I think her name... Oh, man. I can't remember her name at the moment, but it's clear that this was a personal story. There's a lot of key elements from her life that I'm sure she brought out. I think that Pixar's been on a great train, and this is another movie that I'm going to add to their really good movies. Loved it. Um, so my number 15 was Avatar, The Way of the Water. This family sticks together to a greatest strength. Now, I have long been not an Avatar hater. I, you know, thought the movie was fine, but I was an Avatar non-believer in the sense that I never thought the second film not just that the second film was never going to come out. I thought the second film didn't exist. <laughs> like, there is no Avatar 2. James Cameron, quit saying there is. It's never going to happen. Uh, just delayed, delayed, delayed. Uh, but it did finally come out. And I got to say, I had a great time seeing it. I think one of the things I really like about Avatar 2 is it takes one of my least favorite sequel tropes, which is, hey, you remember these characters that you used to love? Well, here are their kids. 
<laughs> and you're just gonna have to deal with these kids the whole movie. It takes that trope and it actually makes me like the kids, which no other sequel like this really ever does. Like I'm talking about, for example, from last year we had Bill and Ted's um, whatever three uh, face the music, face the music, and their daughters were such an integral part to the plot, but I just didn't care about them. You know, that's that's kind of example I'm talking about, where it's like, oh, we don't know what to do with this movie. Let's bring in kids, I guess. Nah, I don't. I don't want it. I don't want it. Except in this one, Avatar. Yeah, more more of the kids. I actually liked the kids. I think maybe the reason it worked so well was because the movie is so long. It introduces you to these kids, but also gives uh, each one enough time in the movie to have their own plot line so that you can grow closer to them. Um, this movie is three hours long, over three hours long, uh, but not a second is wasted. There's nothing I would cut out of the movie. I was never bored watching it. Um, overall, yeah, another, another great one. From the old JC. Yeah, man, he is so good at making sequels. You got Aliens, you got Terminator 2, and now we have Avatar The Way of Water. Mm-hmm. Was either Aliens or Terminator 2, did he make the first one of those? He made the first Terminator, but he didn't. Okay. Ridley Scott made the first Alien. Yeah, that's I also love that story. I don't think it's real, but I've heard it so many times of just James Cameron going up to a whiteboard with aliens on it, and then he put a dollar sign in front of it. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's been debunked as of recent as like that's just a, a Hollywood legend and an old wives' tale. But I just love it. It sounds so much like him. Good, good stuff. Uh, when will Titanic two? <laughs> Titanic 2 when, James? <laughs> what would it even be about? Uh, I guess, I guess the, the kids. <laughs> Moving on to number 14. My number 14 is After Sun. You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whenever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Dad. Sad dad. Sad, sad dad, dad alert. Sad dad. Sad dad. Uh, not going to be a movie for everyone. I think this is very, it's a very, like, it's an art movie. It's an artsy movie. Like, on the surface, it's a movie about a daughter and her father, but it's also a movie about a very, you know, sad, depressed, kind of unsuccessful man who's just trying to have a good vacation with his daughter. Um, but as becomes clear, you know, he doesn't have a lot of money, um, but they have a really great bond. They have a really great vibe. Uh, it, it's a sad one. It's a sad one, but it's also beautiful. Yeah. I, I can't believe it's a debut feature from the director. This was her first film ever. And man, hits it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Agreed. S- stars Paul Meskel, who is in Normal People. And he was also in The Lost Daughter, and now he's in this, and I think I'd love if he could get a movie with some money behind it, because I don't, I don't know how much he's getting paid for these, but he needs to be getting paid more, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very good actor. Oh man, I bet Kevin Feige's already seeing him now, and he's like, probably gonna put him in a Disney Plus show, or a Marvel show. Oh my gosh, he's actually been asked about that. Really? Like, would you do Marvel? And he said, I, I've never been asked but I just don't think I have the patience for that. 
is what he said. Like yeah, that that was that was the reason he said he wouldn't be good at it is because he doesn't have the patience for that. And I don't exactly know what he meant by that. Like maybe the movies just it takes forever for them to come out. Maybe it just means like working on set, like on a big gigantic set like that, you are waiting around a long time before between doing things. Who knows what he meant? Mm-hmm. But you know, fair. Yeah, you know what? It's a personal decision. Uh, I agree. He's it's, a, it's a personal choice that every actor must make, whether or not to appear in a Marvel film. Well, it was um, Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio told Timothy Chalamet that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio gave him some advice, and it was, don't do superhero movies. And it's such a wild financial decision in terms of movies now, but it's working out for Timothy Chalamet. He's doing big budget movies, yeah. but I feel like there's a difference between something big like Dune and the next big Marvel project. Sure, but who do you have more respect for? Like, in terms of, like, when you look at the roles, like, the the man playing Doctor Strange or the man playing young Willy Wonka? Okay, you know what? That's a fair point. <laughs> it's like, both aren't great. Yeah. I mean, but both as soon as be, I heard yeah. Wonka, I'm like, oh, man. Oh, I am so excited for Wonka. You don't understand. It's a oh. Paul King movie who made the greatest sequel of all time, Paddington. Do. Okay, okay. I've been reeled back in. Maybe. Chalamet knows what he's doing. We're going to be here next year at this spot. Wonka is going to be in both of our top fives. Just you wait. Just you wait. There's another movie we didn't see this year, but would probably have made our list if it did. Bones and all. Oh, yeah. If you're wondering where that one is, it's not going to be on this podcast. Nope. Nope. Um, After Sun uh, was up there for me. It was in my top 20. It has... uh, probably one of the most emotional power do you say it's in your top 20 no it isn't it's in my top uh 30 30 that's what i meant (laughs) it's in my 20s yes after sun um i was saying the under pressure scene um devastating Mm, yeah it's a really really heartbreaking uh sad movie sad dad great performances great mother daughter great father daughter duo Mm -hmm. Um, the scene where she is at karaoke and he won't sing with her, uh, crushed my heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My number 14 is Celine Sciamma's Petite Maman. A French film made by the same director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, follows the story of a mother and a daughter uh, due to circumstances of grieving over the loss of their grandmother, a member of their family. Um, Through fantastical forces, her daughter ends up spending time with a little girl who you later learn is the mother as a child. Um, It's a very laid-back and quiet movie. The whole movie feels just about, like, lost moments of... You know, remembering your childhood, and there are just very quiet moments of just these two little girls connecting with one another, asking about their families, putting on little spontaneous plays, and sweet little moments. It's just a a wonderful, sweet little movie. Not the most exciting on here, but it's not trying to be. It's trying to be a nice little quaint movie that I can't recommend highly enough. A very simple premise that was very well executed. And it's also a very short film. Oh, yeah. 
It's barely over an hour, which I respect. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on to your number 13. What is it? My number 13 is Barbarian. Wow, wow, wow. Casey already touched on this movie a little bit, and I don't want to give too much away either. The scares are very effective. Um, the big reveal of this evil force is so satisfying, and the carnage that it continues till the very last frame has it's just a great feeling of oh man you're on you can't believe what's happening all the performances we mentioned the main actress we mentioned Mm -hmm. bill skarsgård the third performer Ooh, i don't even i'm sure (laughs) if you've seen any inkling of advertising you're like oh what is he doing in this movie his Mm -hmm. entrance is wonderful his character is a scumbag and he plays it so well. I didn't know he was going to be in it mm-hmm. until we saw it. And I was like, whoa, what's he doing here? And we're not even going to give it away on this podcast. <laughs> yes, just go watch Barbarian. Of all the movies we're talking about, I guarantee that's the one that you're definitely going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my number 13 is Nope, Jordan Peele's new film, Nope. What's a bad miracle? Jordan Peele, you know, of all of his movies, this is probably my least favorite, but that's not really saying a lot because I still really like it. I really enjoy it. He never misses. I think this is still a very good film. Uh, The way I rank it is like Get Out is my favorite. Us is the scariest. And uh, Nope is probably the most mainstream of all three of his films. But even within that, there is a lot of... You know, very innovative, very interesting horror on display. And I think specifically what I'm referring to is the effects that go along with Jean Jacket. Mm-hmm. So Nope is a story about two adult siblings who are trying to, you know, sort of semi-run their father's horse ranch. Um, after his death but there's some alien force that is affecting them and the property um and they call it jean jacket (laughs) um all of the all of the uh you know actors and performances are really great in this film i especially love stephen yun oh man he is so good in it um but yeah i think the standout for me that i still think about is the effects of jean jacket specifically spoiler ahead for the next 10 seconds uh when the people are eaten by jean jacket and you're inside of jean jacket's body that is you know i've never seen anything like that before it was really good Mm -hmm. mastermind mastermind jordan peele uh before we continue what were your what did you think of the gordy's home section i didn't like that i didn't like i mean but only because it was scary you Mm -hmm. know like i don't want to rewatch that part but i think it was a very scary part Mm -hmm. oh and um you remember what scene you hated the most? Mm. Uh, the scene where the where the aliens are first coming into the ranch and the stables. Oh, I, I didn't hate that scene. I thought that was the scariest scene. That's like, what I, don't I was think, trying to say. Yeah. I don't think anything else in the movie is that scary as that scene, and it turns out to be a fake out. Mm-hmm. So it's not higher on my list. Um, I don't think it's as scary as his other pictures. But I don't even know if that's what he was really going for with this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it has to be scary to be good. It's still very good. It's just, yeah. I think it was marketed as a horror film, and I don't think the 
horror is really the best part of it. That's a good way of describing it. I think that it's his least grossing movie so far. Uh, I know a lot of people were interested to watch it, and the big reveal I know a lot of people are disappointed with, but I feel like the more that you reflect on it, the more that you're like, okay, it makes sense in the grand scheme of what the movie's trying to accomplish, um, really does elevate it for me. Anyway, um, what are we, did you say you're 13? Yes, I said Barbarian. Okay, so my number 12 is Elvis. (laughs) Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. People wanted to put me in jail the way I was moving. I would do anything to make sure my mom and daddy never had to live in no poverty ever again. Oh man, what a picture, what a picture. Immediately seconds into the film (laughs) you are thrust into Baz Luhrmann's distinct over-the-top maximalist style and if you are not on board well then you are not gonna have a good time with the rest of this movie when we saw it we saw it in a theater where it was like the projector the aspect ratio wasn't correct it's like the projector the actual projection was too big for the screen we were watching it on mm-hmm. and someone tried to go tell the theater people this what like the employees mm-hmm. when it started happening and like they're like hey the projector isn't working and then i guess whoever checked on it was just like oh it's on i don't know what they're talking about crazy <laughs> like, so anyway we saw it way too zoomed in but in a way that definitely added to the very like insane nature nature of the film exactly um it added to the insanity i really enjoyed it Uh, it, although seeing it pushed in we did miss some key information like when there was when there's like words at the the bottom of the screen we couldn't quite read them good stuff like that yeah where it's like it's trying to say like what city we're in right now or what year it is yeah it's like i don't know where we are so definitely (laughs) added to the uh fever dream of it all i guess i would say Mm mm-hmm um, but yeah, lo- loved it. I love a lot of Baz Luhrmann movies. I love his Romeo and Juliet. I, I, hot take, I really enjoy his great Gatsby. Um, I think he's very talented. I always thought, like, he himself, though, would be kind of, like, a nerdy guy. And then I saw the video of him, uh, you know, announcing the trailer for Elvis or whatever, and just, like, oh, look, it's like Bono. This guy looks like a rock star. I guess it makes sense. You have to have a lot of confidence to have a style like that. But I don't know. I guess I just picture all directors as being Steven Spielberg-esque nerds. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, also great performances, especially from Austin Butler. I think Austin Butler has been leaning a little too hard into interviews, into discussing like the method acting that he did. I never liked stuff like that. I think it'd be really cool if you could just turn on being Elvis and turn it off. It's really obnoxious. It's a very, very good performance. Very, very good. He just, yeah, so good. I I think at the time I said that his performance was really good, but it felt so odd to have such a good performance up against such a crazy film. Mm -hmm. I said it was like watching Beyonce perform in a Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Because it's like, whoa, it's Beyonce. Oh my gosh, she's so amazing. But wait, what is she doing in a Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> I'm so distracted by this Chuck E. Cheese I'm in. It's you like know? it's the glue holding this weird broken painting together. Not broken, but it's like it's like a kaleidoscope. And it's the one thing that's keeping everything in its uh, psychedelic yeah. place. Yes. Uh, 
<laughs> the camera never stops moving. No. Never stops moving. The only thing that I can really say is a detractor of the film is maybe Tom Hanks's weird accent he's doing. But even that, it's just adding to the experience. I don't know. It does. It's a movie about a real person, and it doesn't feel real at all. Yes. And that's amazing. Like at one point, you got Elvis seen up on the Hollywood sign just because he likes to go there to think. What yeah. in the world? <laughs> Who comes up with this stuff? I love it. I love it. It's like it's not trying to be like a by the numbers biopic. It's trying to be a tribute to just the feeling that Elvis had, not yes. like facts or numbers, any of that sh- like Bohemian Rhapsody, like hodgepodge Wikipedia esque article. It's trying to be an event. It's his um. It's the If I Can Dream from the comeback special is, oh man, I think that was whenever, the point in the movie where I thought, okay, I am watching Elvis perform, not Austin Butler as Elvis. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Anyway, what was your number 12? My number 12 was The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson, Paul Dano, um, I was about to say Gary Oldman, (laughs) Andy Serkis. (laughs) Um, What's black and blue and dead all over? A fun time, a fun time. I think in a in a period of time for DC, which I'm not the biggest DC EU fan. I could care less about Zack Snyder's big sandbox of superheroes to play with. Um, It's weird that this is another iteration of the character right off the bat like, less than a year from Ben Affleck's, but it is so stylistic, it's so its own thing, a great detective story. I think that Paul Dano in it is wonderful as this real-life Zodiac Killer-esque iteration Mm -hmm. of The Riddler. Um, It's also just a very cool movie. Um, So many movies this year were just so cool in its confidence the scene where the uh penguin is running away also played by colin farrell oh yeah who is unrecognizable that is an actor's performance (laughs) well he's also heavily made up but But i know you're talking about even his voice like you tell me that's colin farrell i'll say get out of my house you liar (laughs) it is the cinematography is excellent the score is wonderful even if it sounds a little too much like the Darth Vader theme, like the um, a very great stylistic Batman. We've had the Tim Burton Batman, we've had the Nolan Batman, and now we have the Reeves Batman, which is a really excellent Batman to have. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the Batman, and I really enjoyed Colin Farrell's performance as the Penguin. I think it's a very interesting take on the character. It's, you know, the most realistic we see the Penguin. Um, I don't... A lot of people love Tim Burton's Batman Returns. I wish I did. (laughs) I just... I find it. so many parts of it again so off-putting yeah. um, and the penguin being number one <laughs> on the list i i love Danny devito i love that he goes so hard on his interpretation of the character but man i just hate that he was like 
a, so ugly. He was abandoned <laughs> by his parents and then literally raised by penguins. Now he's like kind of like a cannibal. Is that, <laughs> I don't, I hate it. Uh, so I like Colin Farrell's penguin a lot, but not just in comparison to the weird one. Also, just in general, when he ha- is showing all those pictures and is like, "Holy God, what are you showing me?" His head. Come on, cinema, great. My number 11 is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh, it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! It is a wonderful retelling of the story of Pinocchio that I'm sure we all have heard of, but the twist in this one is Geppetto is a sad, drunk dad who, in a fit of the untimely tragedi- tragedy of his a son's death, he decides to make a replica of him out of wood, and it is a fun retelling of the story. I think that um, the experience of seeing this in theaters was fun. I know that it was made straight to Netflix, but I got to see it at the New Bev with Guillermo del Toro staying in attendance for a little bit, and I think he was only supposed to have 30 minutes of like answering this monitor moderator's question and then after she tried to wrap it up he said something along the lines of it took me so long to get here let's go for a fucking hour (laughs) um very funny version of the story pinocchio he it's not jiminy cricket it's sebastian J. cricket played by ewan mcgregor we also get um, wonderful performances from the actor who played filch in harry potter he Mm -hmm. plays geppetto and he's very good in it. Uh, we have Finn Wolfhard as a random British kid. He was... Um, Isn't he Candlewick? Yes, he's Candlewick. Um, we also have Christoph Waltz, Tilda Swinton, and the best performer is Kate Blanchett as the monkey. I tried to watch Pinocchio. Uh, me and our roommate Molly, we tried to watch it. And we got over an hour in the movie. Like, we really could have kept going. We had, like, 40 minutes left. But we all both kind of reached the same conclusion where we were like, I don't think I like the story of Pinocchio very much. Like, here I am watching what is universally agreed to be the, like, critically acclaimed best version of Pinocchio made in years, if not ever, and I'm still not feeling it. I just don't like the story of Pinocchio. Uh, We keep throwing around the word off-putting, but I just, I get another story I find incredibly off-putting. I hated the Disney movie as a kid. Really? Yeah, it made me sad. Mm -hmm. I hate when he turns into a donkey. I just don't like it. Oh, yeah. Uh, But... I know it's all supposed to be like a fable, like a moral, or a story with a moral where you learn mm. something at the end. But yeah, just doesn't just doesn't sit right with me. And I like I do like parts of this movie. I like the added element of oh Geppetto had a son before and his name was Carlo. Um, I feel like that went on for a very long time, and I was like, wow, I really like this Carlo kid. <laughs> I'm like, why did the Blue Fairy make Pinocchio suck so much? <laughs> like, Geppetto's not just grieving his son, he's grieving, like, the most perfect son of all time. And then here comes Pinocchio, and he's just, like, this mischievous little horrible thing destroying Geppetto's property. Uh, I also will say I liked um, the at putting it in fascist Italy, setting the movie in fascist Italy. I thought that was an interesting add-on. Um there, again, things I liked about it, but I didn't finish it because I was just like, eh, I don't like Pinocchio. I don't like him. <laughs> we should watch the Polly Shore version. 
father, when can I leave to be on my own? I've got the whole world to see. I remember the first time I saw that clip. It changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my number 11 is Tar. Mm. Another mm -hmm. Kate Blanchett 2022 film. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is one of the most important musical figures of our time. All right, so those of you who don't know, Tarr is a movie about a uh, conductor, a female conductor, uh, who is the conductor for an orchestra in Berlin. And I think within the context of the film, she's supposed to be like the first female conductor of this orchestra ever. Again, she's not a real person, a fictional character. <laughs> a lot of people were confused. They saw the movie and they thought it was based on a real person, but no, uh, fictional. And it's just sort of about her fall from grace. She's a problematic person uh, who makes problematic choices. And it's basically like, uh, this is very reductive, but it's about her getting canceled. <laughs> And yeah, she gets canceled and <laughs> her career goes down the tube, her life goes down the tube, um, but it's a very interesting character study. <laughs> I'm sorry, just keep laughing at the thought of just somebody tweeting like, Lydia Tarr got canceled. <laughs> but it's not just a character story about her, because uh, again, she's getting canceled for all this problematic behavior, but it's implied that she's been doing this for years and the people around her have just been kind of aware of it but also have been covering it up because um, uh, they think they can get some benefit out of it. And, you know, it doesn't come until, like, she really, I mean, spoiler, really screws over her assistant that that's when things start coming to light, you know. So it's implied that there's a lot of people in her life that know about this uh, behavior and just haven't been doing anything. So there's a lot going on with it. Uh, great watch, great performance from Kate Blanchett as well. Oh, man. Uh, yes, I could. Man, that in that opening interview scene where it's just about that interviewer asking Lydia Tarr about her EGOT and her history. I can understand why a lot of people assumed that this was a real life artist because yeah. it feels so genuine and oh man, the details are so specific that they feel real. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. I received another weird email. There's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. My number 10 is Cha-Cha Real Smooth. I can't believe college is over. You have a job now? Or? We're not allowed to talk about jobs at the five minutes party. So you either don't have a job or you have a bad job. So this is a movie directed, I think written by and starring a guy named Cooper Rafe. Um, who's a very young filmmaker, born in 97, according oh. to his IMDb. <laughs> Jesus, man. And he's already making absolutely amazing films. So I, uh, so Cha uh, Cha Real Smooth is about a guy who graduated college uh, and is just kind of aimless and doesn't know exactly what he wants to do with his life. Uh, so what he ends up somehow, like, being a like a game leader, a party leader, DJ type guy at bar mitzvahs, uh -huh. um, and through this he meets Dakota Johnson's character, whose name is Domino, and her daughter, who is autistic. One thing I like about a lot of movies that I've seen this year, um, but especially about this movie, is the chemistry between the actors is so 
good. I love movies about connection and people connecting to each other. Um, but I only like that when the connections are actually believable and they work. And in this, the actors have such good chemistry on all levels. Cooper Rafe and Dakota Johnson have really like amazing will they, won't they chemistry. Like she's, you know, engaged to another man. Um, and then, and she's also, you know, applied to be much older than he is, you know, going on probably a decade. Uh, and then, but also Dakota Johnson just has really good mother-daughter chemistry with her daughter. Cooper Rafe has really good, like, brotherly chemistry with his own brother, but also with uh, Domino's daughter. Like, all around, the chemistry in this movie is so good, and that's why it works so well. Because um, that's all the movie really is, basically, is interactions between these characters. So if it didn't have that, it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does. It's a very, very engaging movie. Uh, completely reforms the way I feel about the cha-cha slide song. Yes. <laughs> Every time I'm at a wedding, I'm just going to be sad in the back of my mind listening to that song. But yeah, it's a really wonderful movie. Um, ah, yeah. Uh, really. It's, yeah, it's on Apple Plus. Is that what you call it? Yeah, Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus. Yeah, they have a pretty good output of stuff because they have Coda, Ted Lasso, mm-hmm. uh, the animated series Central Park. They had Wolfwalkers, which Wolfwalkers. was my favorite film of 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have some great stuff. And Cha Cha Slide, I would definitely put up there. Cha Cha for... Real Smooth. Yeah. <laughs> and Cha Cha Real Smooth is definitely one that I would put up there with some of the best that you can find on Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah. What's your number 10? My number 10 is Without a Paddle, starring Seth Green, <laughs> Matthew Lillard, and Dax Shepard. It's wow, a story of for, three... Uh, 17 years in a row. <laughs> it's Tar. My number 10 is Tar, starring Kate Blanchett. Um... Like you said a lot in your words for Tar, it's a very, it is a portrait of this fictional woman and her down spiral in what her creative field was. She was a respected conductor in the classical musical world and her fall from grace is like a train wreck that you can't look away from. Mm -hmm. The scene where... My favorite scene in the movie is whenever another conductor is taking her piece of music that she was going to perform, and I can't remember, does she learn about it too late, or is she just in the bathroom and she hears it start to play? Are you referring to when she tackles the guy? Yes, when she I tackles think, the guy. I, I think it's there's a bit of a time jump between the previous scene and that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how you know some time has passed, basically. Is she presumably off-camera, whole other, like, things in the piece of time we don't see has found out that they're moving forward with a different conductor and rather than handle that gracefully and professionally mm-hmm. she shows up like she's not in the bathroom she's not, she goes there with intent yes to tackle a dude oh man and it's so good it's a slow burn of a movie mm-hmm. which i can understand why somebody would watch this after hearing all of its praise and thinking what the hell is this yes. why is this taking forever but I, it is a great slow bird. There's also, do you remember that moment whenever she's jogging and it's near the yeah, beginning of the movie? Bring, I was going to bring that up. The, yeah. what, one thing people don't talk about with Tarla is all the weird things that are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, 
it's almost implied that there's like ghosts also in the film. Mm-hmm. Like she's when she's jogging through the woods, as you mentioned, and there's a scream from the Blair Witch Project. Yes. Like what? What? There's also uh, when she's walking through her home at night. I didn't notice this watching the movie, but like since then, screenshots have been shared of like a ghostly figure behind yeah. her in another room, and just a lot of interesting things like that, which I don't even. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Like, why is that even in the film? I don't care. I It adds something to it that I enjoy. A little little pepper on top yeah, of it's cl- an already great dish. It's clear that this world is massive. That's what Todd Field's trying to do. It's so massive that we're going to get a short in the Tar Universe <laughs> next year. Yes, the Tar Universe. Uh, but yeah, Tar's my number 10. Really great film. Coming in at number nine, for me, I have RRR, the Bollywood action flick about two dudes who are best friends, has one of the best friendships of the year. These two star-crossed, determined brothers who, whenever they have their minds set on something, man, will they do it. Like, whenever they first meet and that... One person is a soldier working to go up with the ranks, and the other is merely trying to find a lost little girl from a village. Um, Once their two paths eventually cross, they decide to save this little boy from a burning fire, and they don't even say any words to each other. They just share a glance, and bam, one of them is on a motorcycle and swinging by the edge of a bridge. Like you said earlier, it has some incredible action the not do not do dance mm-hmm. is probably my favorite song mm-hmm. sequence of the year it's so good the way they use their suspenders there are sections of the third act where it does lose steam for me personally mm-hmm. and i just think it's uh really really great uh just put uh, three r's in that really great really really great um and it proves that friendship is the most powerful weapon of all in this movie that has so many weapons in it. Uh, great film. Yeah, RRR, I agree. It was a little long for me personally, um, but I don't think it suffers from what I feel like a lot of American action movies suffer from, particularly Marvel movies, which I refer to as the third act schlog, where it's mm-hmm. just like, okay, we've had all this compelling, interesting you know, dynamics between characters and their adversaries. And then at the end, you got to have a big battle, a big fight scene. And it's just, it drags. But Mm -hmm. not in this movie. No, no. Not in this movie at all. Every fight scene is so interesting and creative and well done that I'm ready for more at any given moment. My number nine is The Batman. This is a powder keg. Prisoners to match. We already touched on the Batman when Zach was talking about it. I I have it a little bit higher because um, I do think it's probably my favorite take on the on Batman mm. um, in a long time, at least. You know, obviously the Dark Knight, great picture, um, but I don't know if I love Christian Bale's Batman. I think he does a really good Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Whereas Robert Pattinson's doing the opposite. He's doing such a good Batman that I don't want to say Bruce Wayne feels like an afterthought for Robert Pattinson, but I feel like 
Bruce Wayne feels like an afterthought for Batman in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no real Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is the mask that this guy is putting on. Yeah. Um, and I like that take on the character a lot. It makes more sense than any other version of the character. Like, why would a guy just go out dressed like a bat? <laughs> and doing this. This is this is the version of the character that makes the most sense. He's the most kind of unhinged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a really great detective story. As I've already talked about, I love a good whodunit. And that's what, a little bit, uh, yeah, what yeah. this movie is. Also, the Riddler's egging him on as well. So, we know who did it. Mm-hmm. We know it was Paul Dano the whole time. <laughs> uh, but it's still fun watching Batman figure it out. I'll say Andy Serkis is the weakest just as a detriment to the script not focusing enough on Alfred yeah um, he's he yeah. doesn't have a lot to do which mm-hmm. is weird because there's like a big part of the plot that has to do with him but it still just feels like he didn't have a lot to work with there mm-hmm. in the end of the day it's kind of crazy that Alfred as is as big of a character as he is <laughs> to mm-hmm. begin with I love it but you know like, the other Alfreds have been pretty iconic, I will say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's mostly the fault of the script that this one didn't have as much to do. Uh, Zoe Kravitz, though, is great. Oh, yeah. Love cat. Love seeing a Catwoman out there. She's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But anyway, let's move on to number eight. Our number eights, it looked like, are the same. So let's say it at the same time. Our number eight is... Glass, Glass Onion. Onion! Tonight, a murder will be committed. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. This is truly delightful. Glass Onion is Ryan Johnson's new whodunit, which, as I mentioned (laughs) 30 seconds ago, I love a whodunit, love a whodunit. Um, It takes place in the Knives Out universe where, uh, you know, the main detective is the only character really returning, I believe, Benoit Mm -hmm. Blanc. And he's got a whole new cast of rich folk that he's helping... Uh, you know, solve a mystery and a murder for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to reveal too much, but I will just say all of the performances are great, obviously. Um, but also, I liked this one a lot more than Knives Out. To tell the truth, I didn't love Knives Out. I wanted to. Going into it, I thought I would. But I just found the overall twist and reveal of Knives Out to be very unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think in a movie like this, you've got to have a really solid reveal. And Knives Out just didn't do it for me. Um, this one, though, this one has a great, great twist that mm-hmm. comes. Uh, well, I won't reveal one, but there is a great twist. And it's very solid. And... It's just a very much more satisfying reveal and overall film than Knives Out was for me, personally, personally. Man, I I don't even know what I can add. I think all of my thoughts were pretty much the same as yours. I think the only difference is I loved the original Knives Out. Mm -hmm. I agree that thinking this one's better because Marta was fine, who was Ana de Armas in the original. I think that the new main focused character of this Mm -hmm. new cast is such a strong actress Mm -hmm. that her twists and turns are so, so great. And I just found that storyline so much more compelling than artist character. Yeah. I also think that this one is very funny. I love how the big reveal happens and Blanc is just so taken aback about how stupid it was (laughs) so dumb it's brilliant 
No! It's just dumb! I was constantly laughing. Uh, we also had the chance to see it in theaters yes, in November, yeah. which I'm really happy we had the opportunity to do that. Yes, it's honestly a crime that it wasn't more widely released for a longer period of time in theaters. I don't understand Netflix. I don't. Uh, and it's also not being super publicized, like marketed mm-hmm. for Netflix either, which is also crazy. But you can watch it on Netflix. Go watch it. Um, and if by some miracle it gets re-released in theaters sometime, definitely go see it in that if you have the opportunity. Yeah, it's funny that we watched it um, uh, at the time of we're recording this, so uh, it's kind of long ago. And to when it just released on Netflix, I'm getting a lot of people who I follow on like Twitter and Letterboxd who didn't have a chance to see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm remembering, oh yeah, I loved that part. Oh, yeah. that was a great part. And it's fun revisiting that. And I also love that people love it too. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to number seven. What's your number seven? My number seven is Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. Let me tell you about life back then. It was a great time and place to be a kid. Living in the Houston area in the late 60s, and especially near NASA, was like being where science fiction was coming to life. This, in my opinion, is the most underrated movie of 2022. This is a Netflix film directed by Richard Linklater, and it has the same rotoscoped animation that his movie A Scanner Darkly did, which is off-putting, but once you get past 10 minutes, you start to really uh, stop noticing that. But all in all, Apollo 10 and a Half is a story about a young boy in Houston in 1969. In the shadow of the Apollo moon landing happening, he is mainly recounting his childhood in 1969, while he undergoes this secret um, military operation where they can't send Neil Armstrong to the moon first, so they have to send a smaller spaceship with a child in it um, in order to see like if it works correctly. Now, this... Uh, oh my god, is that Robert Pattinson driving by us, <laughs> listening to Nirvana? Um, now, this frame of this... Uh, secret Apollo mission happening only happens in the first 10 minutes of Apollo 10 and a half and the last 10 minutes. Everything in the middle is basically um, Richard Linklater remembering his time in the 60s and it feels very Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It even feels a lot like Boyhood too and it's just so wonderful being in this. It's like being wrapped up in a warm, cuddly, nostalgic blanket for a time that I didn't grow up with, but it made me long for these summer evenings that they would spend in Texas, and all the family feels very real and genuine. Um, It's also narrated by Jack Black, who plays this little boy as an adult, bringing back Dewey Finn from School of Rock, my favorite Richard Linklater movie. It's a culmination of also Dazed and Confused, too, because that's a movie that's nostalgic for an older time. So it's this amalgamation of a lot of different things. And the biggest detriment is the animation style, which I can imagine somebody watching a minute of this and just saying, (laughs) nope, nope. But once you stick with it, I think that you have one of the best movies of 2022. Alrighty, you heard it here. For those of you who are afraid of rotoscoping... 
Zach said, keep with it. Be, you, you've been warned. <laughs> Stick with it. You'll get something really nice and special. Uh, what is your lucky number seven? My number seven is Babylon. What about you? Sorry? If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. We just saw Babylon, yes. like hours ago. Mm-hmm. We just saw it. We knew we had to see it before we did this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, we saw it. And I ended up loving it. I really <laughs> went back and forth on it. Really, uh-huh. like, you know, like, the, I will tell you now, audience, if you have not seen it yet, the first five-ish minutes are horrible to me. <laughs> like, I hated... <laughs> I hated the first five minutes, and I was like, is this how the whole movie is going to be? A lot of bodily fluids, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a lot of, like, gross-out things throughout the film that I feel like are mostly humor things, like bodily humor jokes, visual Mm -hmm. uh, bodily humor gags that are just gross, gross gross-out things, Mm -hmm. gross-out gags that I don't like. I don't like that kind of stuff. Um, But it does fit within this movie about, like, excess in Hollywood and also spoils of that like the way the way it spoils things Mm -hmm. so it all like it does make sense um but Babylon follows a lot of different characters mainly a guy named Manny Torres who is just trying to make it in Hollywood behind the scenes however he can he's working for some hotshot like I think studio head at the beginning of the film, like in a very, very small role, like within the home. And then he ends up working for uh, an actor named Jack, who's played by Brad Pitt. And then he sort of ascends the ranks through Mm -hmm. there. Um, And then it also follows uh, Margot Robbie's character, Nellie Leroy, who wants to be a star, um, but she's incredibly self-destructive. And going back to what I said about Cha-Cha Real Smooth about you know, that's like a really a movie about connection. Mm-hmm. And Babylon is not really a movie about connection. But you do feel that connection and that chemistry between Manny and Nellie at the beginning of the film. Basically, she tries to sneak into a party and Manny ends up getting her in. And their first glance, like, oh, you can feel them forming a <laughs> bond right then and there just from the way they're looking at each other. And I love that about a film when it's literally just two actors like looking at each other, but you can feel that chemistry that is there. Um, and so I love that. I love that connection. And I love a lot of parts of this movie. There's a really great scene midway through with an assistant director. They're basically, it's, you know, sound is coming to the pictures. So now they have to make movies with this whole new technology that they aren't familiar with. And there's a lot of chaos that surrounds it. And the guy playing the assistant director, I think his name is PJ Byrne. Oh my gosh, he goes over the top. This man is never at like a five or a six. He's always at an 11. And I love her performance like that. Honestly, my favorite scenes in the film are with him. So good. Mm-hmm. And honestly, and then again, the ending of the movie is so... I hadn't... I never... You would never guess how this movie is going to end. <laughs> I don't mean like in a big twist or reveal, but just stylistically speaking, you would never see that ending coming. Man, is it, it, that sealed it for me. I was like, you know what? Done and done. I love this. Top 10 of the year. Great time. Yes, Uh Damien Chazelle. More, 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 more. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy that we just got done seeing that and it's still fresh in our minds. I'm surprised we don't talk about this more because there's so much to unpack with this movie. Mm -hmm. But overall, Damien Chazelle, 
proved himself time and time again. He is such a strong director. Mm -hmm. There are so many grandiose moments of this movie. It really is an epic of all these characters that you follow and their odyssey through this time in a changing Hollywood. And my favorite scenes are the maximalist, just Mm -hmm. everything that is happening on screen is just taking relish in just being a grand spectacle. Uh, The scene whenever they're filming a war epic alongside a little rinky-dink bar Mm -hmm. uh, woman, or two women in a bar story, like they're happening within just so close to one another. And it's such a big scene. There's also a cameo or I wouldn't even say a cameo, a supporting role from my favorite director, Spike Jones, who mm-hmm. plays this German director who is threatening the people who are working on his crew if they don't make the movie that he's trying to make. And it's so funny. The whole movie is an incredible spectacle to behold. Yes, it's in- it is an incredible spectacle. Um, I really went back and forth on this movie throughout like it's a very polarizing film for audiences people really either love it or hate it and i definitely went back and forth throughout the movie like i don't know how to feel like there were scenes like i don't know how to feel Mm -hmm. um like it also like it went on for a while i was like oh man is it over like you know like it's like i really went back and forth but man by the end i did settle into loving it and i think that's a really interesting part of the movie is there's so much going on you don't feel just one thing about it throughout I I can't think of another movie in a long time where I've really just gone back and forth like that throughout the course of the film. Mm -hmm. I think the most emotion, like varying emotion I feel when watching a movie is like, oh, I'm interested, now I'm bored. But I don't ratchet between I hate it, I love it, I hate it, I love it, I hate Uh it, I love it, like I did with this movie. Uh (laughs) Um, You know, very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. My number six is Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Mm. Oh, man. Oh, that tiny little shell. What a delightful movie. All right, so I'm making like a little documentary. Oh, it's like a movie, but nobody has any lines and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it. So basically, it's a combination live action stop motion movie about a little shell named Marcel, Marcel, who has a big eye and he wears shoes. And he lives with his grandma in this house and they used to have a really big shell community um but they all were lost basically they were uh they lived with a fa- uh, a woman and her boyfriend husband something um who split up and then in a rush they the shells all accidentally ended up in the man's suitcase and then he went away so now uh, marcel and his grandma are separated from the rest of the shell community. So basically there's uh, uh, someone renting out the home who's a filmmaker who starts making a little movie about Marcel. And it's just such a heartwarming story and it's very, very funny. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. Oh, absolutely heartwarming. Also a little bit of our favorite guy, Nathan Fielder at the end, voicing one of the shells. You don't see him out and about a lot outside of his, you know, weirdo stuff like the rehearsal. Um, So it's always great to see or even just hear him. Yeah, yeah. I think there were like a lot of layers to the story too. You Mm -hmm. know, um, it's Jenny Slate, right? Yes, Jenny Slate. Jenny Slate is the voice of Marcel. Jenny Slate's the voice of Marcel. And she used to make all these Marcel Lachelle shorts 
for YouTube with her then husband. Um, and then they got divorced. And then now they're making this movie together, which a big theme of it is separation and divorce. Like, there's so many layers to yeah, it. Wow, um, I, yeah, wow. A lot going on. Because also the filmmaker, the reason he needs to rent out a place is because he's separating from his wife, who I think you see a picture of them together, and it's Jenny Slate and it him. Is? Really? Maybe, maybe. Oh, I, I might be misremembering that. But there's a lot of there's a lot going on here. Subtext that I guess you need to know like celebrity gossip to read about. One of my favorite things about Jenny Slate is she also once dated Chris Evans and like they were like on again off again. And she was like, Yeah, I never thought I'd be the kind of person to be like, yeah, I'm dating Captain America. And I'm like, you go, girl. <laughs> uh, but anyway, even if the photo thing isn't true, which it might not be, uh, the overall like themes and stuff and having to like make a movie with your partner like that and then ha- like an ex-partner and then having it turn out that well. Mm-hmm. So um, unbelievably impressive. Yeah, they must have. Oh, man, they must be on such good, comfortable terms. Yes, agreed. Power to them. Power to them, yeah. And even ignoring all of the the behind-the-scenes stuff going into it, it's just a good movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that, it stands on its own legs without you having to know a whole backstory about it. Because, again, it's also just about a little shell. Exactly. Walking around. It's the (laughs) cutest thing that you could see this year. It's the most wholesome thing. It's uh, A24 produced it, and... It, I want to say it's the first G, G or PG A24 movie. It's like, I would say this is if you're if you're trying to turn your kid into a little cinephile and you're trying <laughs> to make like a baby's first A24 movie, Marcel the Shell, wonderful choice. Wonderful choice. All right, what's your number six? My number six is Jordan Peele's Nope. Alright, I've told you all about how I feel about Nope. How do you feel about it? I think that this is Jordan Peele's most ambitious movie so mm. far. Going into making this, oh, well, first of all, it's about, like you said, two adult siblings of obtaining their deceased father's movie horse ranch, and then they learn of this alien presence that's happening, and they are determined to catch it on film. They really want to capture that in order to, um, you know, sell it and whatnot. But then you also have stuff going on with former child star turned theme park owner Steven Yun, um, who the whole movie revolves around giant spectacle. And what I was about to mention before is that Jordan Peele, when being interviewed about this movie, made it like he was never going to make another movie again because mm-hmm. he was conceiving this movie during the time of the pandemic and he's like what do i want to see on the big screen and seeing things and giant spectacles are like clearly the themes of this movie it also makes a big point when to look away mm-hmm. and that need to see what's happening because that also deals with the Gordy's home story about mm-hmm. this former child star and how they turned something so evil and or just um, dangerous, I should say, how they turned something so dangerous and tried to sanitize it, sanitize it, but out of the things of controlling nature, it ended up in this brutal, tragic killing spree on a sitcom set, and then this killing spree only continued after they tried to with this alien uh control it and 
these horse ran these horse ranchers were the only ones who can really kind of try and tame it and capture it. It is oh, um in terms of my Jordan Peele movies, this is my second favorite. I love Us with all my heart. Get Out is really great. Um but Nope is further proof that Jordan Peele is one of our strongest filmmakers so far, and I can't wait to see what that crazy son of a gun does next. Alrighty, what's your number five? My number five is The Banshees of Inisherin. Like you said, it's about just two Irish friends in the early 1900s, and it's all about their breakup. It's, very, it's a very simple story, but it's so human in the way it just Colin Farrell's character is confused at this sudden um uh separation in paths and the different trajectories in life one is determined to be remembered for something because he feels he doesn't have a lot of time left and the other one is just so heartbroken that their time together he he even though he Colin Farrell sees it as time well spent Don Don Donald Gleason or Brendan Gleason. Brendan Gleason yeah. um, is so uh, sad that he's he feels like he's wasting his time. Um, it's a great kind of crossroads that's performed so so well. The fingers bit is going mm. to stay with me so much. The scene whenever he starts, uh, Brendan Gleason's character starts to hang out with another person, replacing Colin Farrell. It gets to Colin so much that he convinces him that his father or one of his parents got hit by a car, <laughs> <laughs> which is my favorite scene in the movie because of the the punchline to that joke. Yes, so great. Um, also, gorgeous environments. I could look at that seaside of the ireland shores all day wonderful film wonderful film yeah one thing we haven't spoken about when discussing the banshees of inish that sharon is barry what's his face's uh, keowen keowen barry keowen i love barry keowen he was in probably my favorite yorgos lanthimos film the killing of a sacred deer um he's just a little weirdo he's a little weirdo freaky guy like bill skarsgård um though he did have a very different turn in eternals where he even though he was also kind of playing like a weird freaky guy who can puppet master control people he also had this sort of romantic thing going on which i loved i love to see that let's get him in more roles like that because he's very good he's very good in everything you know he's really good in this band she's in sharon um, heartbreaking. He has the most heartbreaking moment of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, where basically he asks a girl out and she says no. Uh, and that scene has been floating around Twitter because it's just so good. Such a good performance. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my number five is The Northman. Father! Witness the rise of the Northman. The Northman, Robert Eggers, the Northman. You were convinced he was like not American, Robert Eggers. You were like, you yeah, know, he's he's like from Scandinavia, right? I'm like you make a movie about Vikings without being from Norway, Zachary. No, you oh, he refu- you refused to believe has, he was a, an American man. He has European tendencies, and it leaks out in all of his movies. This man was born in like I want to say like Connecticut or something crazy, like New England, basically. That uh, that man feels like he stowed away on a boat from 1940s, like Europe. I think you're basing that entirely on his 
film output and not what he actually looks like. Like, he looks like the most American dude. No, I am. You're right. I'm totally basing it on The Witch. I'm not convinced a man from current Connecticut can make a movie like The Vavitch. And The Northman, for that matter. But I've been proven wrong. I loved with the Northman scene, Robert Eggers being given a bunch of money and just, you know, running with it. I do think that the witch and um, the Povich and uh, the lighthouse are maybe more unique films. Mm-hmm. Um, they, but uh, that might just be because they had smaller budgets and they had to, you know, find smaller stories to tell. I mean, the lighthouse is literally just like a cha- chamber drama about two guys in the lighthouse. <laughs> On the witch is a horror movie that doesn't require too many, you know, like visual or practical effects. Like it's yeah. very much just the tension between the actors and the characters. Um, but I, I, that's not a detraction to the Northman at all. Like again, it's still in my top five movies of the year because I really enjoyed it. You know, I myself am Scandinavian, descended from Vikings, and they were just horrible violent people and you know it's like it's nice to see that on film because you look at it it's like the period accuracy is very very much there while also just incorporating all this like old world magic and witchery into it there's some very just disturbing imagery throughout the film um and like these very haunting things in addition to all the violence and gore and I mean, that's where, you know, the, the witch and the lighthouse, like that's where you see that aspect of Robert Eggers coming in is in all like the more haunting magic-y stuff that also goes on. Um, really underrated performance from Nicole Kidman. Nobody's talking about her for the Oscars. I feel like she should be in the running. I think she was very interesting. She's playing a very interesting character in The Northman. Also, Alexander Skarsgård, though, like, he is all in. He is all in. He's a great actor. Um, and Because he, he can do it all, right? You know, he's in The Northman, leading the show. This very violent, action-heavy role. Um, very angry. You know, it's a story about a guy who, when he was a kid, he watched his father, who is this Viking king, um, be murdered. Um, by his own brother, I think mm-hmm. was who it was. And then he, you know, rose away, vowing to one day come back, get revenge, and save his mother. Um, and, you know, that's played through in every aspect of the performance. So he's doing this. Also this year, he was in the season premiere of Documentary Now, <laughs> playing a Werner Herzog-esque character, um, which, if you don't watch Documentary Now... But you want to get into it. I highly recommend the premiere of the new season. It's a two-parter. Oh, great TV. So funny. They could have released that as a film, and I would have gone to theaters to watch it. It was so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he's a great actor and should also be awarded things. Yeah. Uh, love seeing Bjork back yeah. in the acting game. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just for a very brief scene. Um, all around a great picture. Great picture. Another great Anya Taylor-Joy performance. Oh, you know, yeah. She never, she never phones it in. She's always doing... The most. Mm-hmm. It's a fun reunion for her and Robert Eggers, too. Yes. That's where yes. she got her big start. Yeah, that is, that's very true. That was her first film, right? Or first-ish. Uh, it was like, I don't, if it's not her first, it was her breakout. One. Yeah, her breakout. My number four is cheating just a little bit. 
because technically it had its original release in 2021, but it did not have its US release until 2022. So just because it was like literally impossible for me to watch it until 2022, I'm counting it as a 2022 film. Anyway, my number four is the worst person in the world. This is a Norwegian film, uh, you know, the Northman, obviously dealing with a lot of Norwegian stuff, but it's technically an American film by American people, uh, well, American director at least, whereas The Worst Person in the World is a Norwegian film from Norway. Uh, but it's very relatable. It's very relatable. It's very. It's a modern story about a young woman uh, in her twenties to thirties. There, there is like a time passing in this film um, when she and she's just you know again not sure what she wants to do with her life. And yeah, at first watching the first part of it, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. But as the movie goes on. Um, there's like a real gut punch that comes like halfway three quarters of the way into the movie that really really got me um and i think just made it such a strong film i think her first boyfriend as well in the film the one that you're like the, her main guy she's with mm-hmm. for most of the movie until they break up is such an interesting character because <laughs> he's like a a comic artist yeah of, yeah this very crude comic called Bobcat (laughs) and they're turning it into a movie and he does like interviews where he's basically saying all this like misogynistic stuff and he basically also gets canceled but you turn around and all of his interactions with the main character the protagonist are just so like nice and just gentle and he does seem like he's the best fit for her like he seems like he's if nothing else, a very good boyfriend. And I just found that dynamic very fascinating where it's like this guy public facing kind of sucks, but like in private was just such, it seemed like a good guy. I don't know. Uh, I thought that whole dynamic was very interesting and also kind of funny. Like it's also like, you know, there's a lot of funny moments in this movie as well. Um, Anyway, really, really enjoyed it. What do you think of it? I completely forgot about that subject of the movie or like that that <laughs> specific story of the movie because it has been a little over a year or it was, like, out, it was oh, out in january yeah like, yeah uh, yeah <laughs> it was like uh, it's been about Almost a year, year yeah and i remember loving it when i saw it it was a wonderful wonderful movie um i think i retroactively put it on my best of the year list of last year mm-hmm um, my favorite scene in it is whenever all of time stops and she decides to go run after, I don't remember if it's the first guy or the second guy, but she runs to the person that she is in that moment in time in love with while everybody around her is stopped like it's mm-hmm. the mannequin challenge. I I really love that scene. I think that this woman, quote unquote, the worst person in the world world is so fascinating i think that she is just an interesting character mm-hmm. even if she isn't likable at parts i would still say like i am fascinated by her yeah. in a very lydia tar-esque kind <laughs> of way um wonderful movie um yeah great norway output it's interesting because I do think she, for the most part, even though she's making some strange choices that I don't agree with, she still is likable to me. I think she is very relatable. 
Not just because she's Norwegian and has brown hair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, like, born in Norway, though. I'm just, you know... Descended. Descended. What was your number four? My number four was Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Tell me about what's life like. It's pretty much common knowledge that it takes at least 20 shells to have a community. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket. It is the most wholesome movie of the year by far. The It is so instantly likable. From the first minute you watch this movie, you are on board. Um, I never watched any of the previous Marcel the Shell videos on YouTube that I guess aired circa like 2010 and were a small little popular viral sensation that somehow just flew past my radar. But the movie is so charming, so endearing, uh, really funny. Uh, Isabella Rossellini as the grandmother. Oh my goodness, what a performance. So in so tragic too, so sad. Probably my favorite animated movie of the year by default. I think I have a hard time calling that one animated. Uh, I'd you know, animators had to do the stop motion for it. Sure. I'm not going to let the hard work of artists go unnoticed. That's good, that's good. What's your number three? My number three is Babylon, made by Damien Chazelle. When I first moved to LA, signs on all the doors said, no actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. This weirdo made a three-hour epic of the worst that movies have to offer. Not like the movie is bad, but just the people who mm. make it or create it, at least in the 1920s. He puts a spotlight on the worst of it, played by, or through the through the adventures of like five key characters. Um, it's heavily influenced by many different cinematic um, specific movies, techniques, um, pays homage to like 10 different movies at once, especially the ending as well. Man, there is so many other movies that the character Manny could have watched in a theater at the end. <laughs> and the one that he had to watch was a direct trauma from his life and yes. his time in Hollywood. Uh, like you said, the first five minutes are really gross and disgusting. Mm. So many things that you could be off put by it. But it's like a it's like an endurance test. If you can make it past those first five minutes, you are in for a wild ride. That scene with the AD, like you said, brilliant. Um, I I can see why some people I can see why a lot of people actually could hate it. But me, I love it. I think that history is going to be kind to this movie. I think. 20 years down the line, people are going to be like, wow, Babylon was so misunderstood and nobody saw it. But uh, we were on the ground, we we're on the ground floor for the yeah. Babylon. I feel like if people, are people not seeing it? I, this is also a historically bad weekend for just weather in the United States. Yeah, yeah. I hope that that doesn't impact the way people look at the box office success of the film because yeah. No, people couldn't leave their house yeah. the other day when the movie premiered. It was like, you got to stay inside. <sighs> Seattle's having a big ice storm. Uh, snow hitting the entire like northern half of the country. It was a bad time if you wanted to go see a movie. Mm -hmm. The cinephiles, they were locked in. They're it's snowed true. in. They're snowed yeah. in. Um, they couldn't see Margot Robbie fight a snake. Oh, man. 
Great stuff. Damien Chazelle knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. What's your number three? My number three, following a somewhat similar vein of movie, my number three is The Fablemans. Movies are dreams that you never forget. So Steven Spielberg's story about little Sammy Fableman, who is a stand-in for little Steven Spielberg, uh, and it's a story that follows a couple different things. It follows him falling in love with filmmaking, uh, but it also follows the demise of his parents' marriage. And that's more of what is taking center stage in this film. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been describing this as, you know, a love letter to cinema. Um, and I don't agree with those takes. I think this is a movie about, this is a movie about divorce and the only reason we're even talking about it being a love letter to movies is because the kid likes making movies because the kid is Steven Spielberg. We're talking about Steven Spielberg's parents' divorce. But I don't think it's actually... Like, the ending, sure, love letter to cinema. <laughs> but the rest of it, you know, the you know, it's like an over, like over two-hour-long movie. And yeah, the last ten minutes, love letter to cinema. The rest mm-hmm. of it, mostly just, a, like, the story of... A parent, like parents divorcing and how it affects their son, who just happens to be an amateur filmmaker. Yeah. Who would grow into Steven Spielberg? And I think there's so much to love about the movie. Michelle Williams, always giving good performances. She really is a chameleon. Paul Dano's really good in this. Uh, I love the fact that Paul Dano is playing a dad <laughs> who is saying to young Steven Spielberg, maybe you should get a real job. Like. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a riot. It's great. Um, But he's also very supportive in his way. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, a lot of people have said things like, the last 10 minutes will outlive us all. Yeah, the last 10 minutes are great. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah, ever since that scene hit YouTube, it was in like my recommended videos of basically the ending of the movie. I've rewatched it like five times since it's dropped mm-hmm. in the span of like a week. I will go back to that scene always. It is so good. The context behind it is great. Uh, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Seth Rogen is so good in it oh, as man. well. Uh, he is also a much more versatile actor than I think the general public thinks of him as being. I mean, maybe versatile isn't the right word, but he's able to take his shtick and make it work in both comedic films and also prestige dramas as he does in this film Mm -hmm. um he's a very good performer there's one scene where if it was any other movie i feel like it would be implying that seth rogan is sammy's real father like Uh (laughs) but i don't think because because this is a movie about Steven spielberg's life so i don't think that's what it was implying it was just you know very strange like what was going on there (laughs) but obviously this guy this uncle of his has been such a big part of his life that it would make sense that they do have like a very close bond but yeah anyway good stuff you said earlier something i really liked which is that uh babylon shows how movies can bring out the worst in people and the Fablemans shows how the movies can bring out the best in people mm-hmm. which I really like I like that. I think that's very much Steven Spielberg's vibe to begin with but I yeah. also think one thing the Fablemans does really well is sort of show how the sort of disconnect that Sammy has with life around him um, mm-hmm. like there's the scene where his parents announced they're getting a divorce 
Um, by the way, one of the actors playing his sister in that scene just is going full, like, actor. I'm like, whoa, whoa, there's the Oscar. <laughs> this is for the Oscar reel here. Um, this one's for the reel. But anyway, but he, and then he sees himself in a mirror, but in the mirror he's holding a camera, which he isn't in real life. But that's just, like, that's how he normally processes information. Mm-hmm. And so that's something to be said about the fact that he sort of feels, because of cinema, he feels this disconnect. But anyway, no, I also think it's more of a... An uplifting look at the movies, yeah, compared yeah. to what Babylon was doing. Very different films, but also kind of, you know, in somewhat of the same vein. I agree, and it's crazy that they came out within the same month. Too. Yeah. Alrighty, so now we're moving on to my number two. Okay, and if you've been listening to this podcast, you've probably been thinking, "Wow, great picks from Casey. Ugh, great taste in cinema." Um, what I'm about to say now is going to make you doubt every opinion you've had of me. <laughs> and you made me question my judgment for everything else I've put on this list. But this is my list. This is my top 20 of the year. Uh, anyway, moving forward, my number two is Downton Abbey, A New Era. A telephone call for you, my lord. Mr. Barber is a producer and director. He wants to make a film at Downton. A moving picture at Downton. Uh, this is the sequel to the 2019 film, Downton Abbey, and is also, uh, you know, a general sequel to the six-season show, Downton Abbey. Now, one of the reasons I love Downton Abbey anywhere is the same reason I love the first Downton Abbey film. Takes these characters who I love, who have just been having had a horrible time in the show, you know, so much drama, went through so <laughs> much turmoil and sadness and death, and I just wanted them to be happy, and gives them a movie where they're finally happy. <laughs> it's very cathartic to watch. Like, their mm-hmm. problems are very small and kind of, you know, minuscule compared to what they were going through in the show, and it's just... You know, there's enough little drama to keep you entertained because, you know, it's a movie. There's got to be something interesting to keep you hooked. But also, for the general public, another reason to really like it is because the it has multiple different plots that are very interesting. So watching trailers for Down Abbey New Era, I was very worried because one of the plots of the film is that they're filming a movie at Downton, okay? And every time I watched a trailer for it, I was like, oh, this is cringe. This is going to be bad. And then when they actually make the movie, they or like in the actual film, Downton Abbey New Era, this making a movie plotline is so well done. It's so well done. It's a Singing in the Rain-esque tale about them making a movie at Downton. Basically, Downton Abbey, they're, you know, they're, they're having some financial struggles. We are getting into, depre- like, the Depression era. <laughs> they're having some financial struggles. They need to put a new roof on the building. Um, and then they're like, well, Mary, who's in charge of Downton now, is like, well, what, what if we just let them film a movie here? As like, we have location scout coming in, let's do it. And they're like, oh, I don't like this idea. But eventually everyone goes along with it. So they're making this movie, and then midway through making the movie, they're like, oh my gosh, we have to turn into a sound picture, or they aren't going to let us, you know, keep making the film. But the lead actress of this movie has this horrible, like, cockney English accent that nobody wants to hear. Uh, So they try to do some vocal training, you know, that doesn't work, so Mary ends up, like, dubbing over this woman. It all all is a very happy, happy ending. It's, like, a lot of the same plots of Babylon, but with a much happier, happier ending. Um, there's also a really great plot line, which, you know, I think it's supposed to be the A plot is that uh, Maggie Smith's cow- uh, character, the Dowager Countess Violet, has been left a 
villa in France by this man who was in love with her decades upon decades ago. And so there's a lot of like back and forth of like, did she have an affair with this man? Was it just kind of like an infatuation on his part? That's also really great. But it's really that like making a movie plot down that I just think was so, it was just so well done. Like I wasn't expecting it to be, I thought it was gonna be bad, but instead it was just great. The director, like within the movie, who's directing this sound picture was also so good. I wanted Mary to have an affair with him because I hate her husband. I hate her husband. And so then she's being presented with this very compelling romantic interest, but it is, spoiler, she says, no, I'm not going to do this, which in terms of character growth is good for her. But man, I liked him way more than her husband. Great film for the fans. Great film for the non-fans. What do you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Uh, Like you were saying, I loved the plot about making a movie. It was done very, very charmingly. It's a very optimistic movie. I have never, I've only seen maybe a snippet or maybe you showed me an episode of the show and I was like, okay, this is great. Then through uh, circumstances, I also watched the first Downton Abbey movie, which is very good. And the sequel is also very good. They're very good movies. I should get around to watching that show sometime. New Year's resolution. We have the whole show on Blu-ray or something over here, a box set. So yeah, we'll watch the whole thing. It seems the public only want films that talk. I should have thought the best thing about films is that you can't hear them. Be even better if you couldn't see them either. (laughs) Alright, what's your number two? My number two is The Fablemans. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. What kind of movie are we going to make? hundred dollars for a hobby? It's not a hobby, Dad. We, no less than a couple of seconds ago, talked about this. But, oh my goodness, Steven Spielberg is one of my favorite directors, so seeing a movie about how he got his interest into making filmmaking an art form for him is so, so good. He, oh man, uh, there's so much I love about this movie. It's a very, uh, I'm saying the word, optimistic. It's a very optimistic look on filmmaking and uh, the stuff with his parents' divorce is heartbreaking. Uh, makes total sense how Steven Spielberg became the artist that he is and uh, he's gone on interviews saying or Seth Rogen has said in interviews like yeah he was he was crying most every day on set I'm sure this was not an easy task for Mm -hmm. him to make it but it also just shows how vulnerable he is he was an insecure kid moving from place to place Uh, he deals with uh, anti-semitic comments in heartbreaking moments of the movie it's also a very funny movie too Mm -hmm. whenever young sammy gets a high school girlfriend uh and she's very i wouldn't say religious but into jesus it's so i would say say she's very religious like almost fanatical yeah fanatical (laughs) yes and it's so funny uh, a lot of funny moments. Uh, it's great. funny because she's like very Christian. He's yeah. very Jewish. <laughs> and they just go together like peas in a pod. Yeah. Um, another thing with that, you're saying about being a very emotional movie for Steven Spielberg. Steven, uh, Spielberg has said like he didn't want to make the movie until his father had passed away. 
Um, and his father lived to be 104. <laughs> so he's been waiting to make this movie for a long time. And I, when I first read the quote before seeing the movie, I assumed it was just like a very unfavorable portrayal of his father. Yeah, yeah. But I think instead, it's, it's actually a very favorable portrayal of his father. You know, his father... You know, it is kind of silly to watch it and be like, oh, you're not being supportive of your child. He's he's Steven Spielberg. Like, it's easy to say that from a modern perspective, but, like, from his perspective, he's like a guy saying, like, hey, you know, you got to be able to support yourself. Like, it's understandable why he's acting like that. Um, so I think it's maybe more astute with the fact of how he was watching the demise of his parents' marriage before his father even really seemed to know about it. You know, yeah. it's like he knew about it before his dad did. And maybe that's just his perspective and that's not really what happened, but you know, I, I would imagine that would be hard even to this day for his father to watch. Yeah, and it even seems like uh, his mother, played by Michelle Williams, was also, she didn't consciously know that she was like falling in love with Seth Rogen's character because it's like uh, she doesn't understand why he's so upset and it's not until... Uh, young Sammy shows her the footage that he filmed during their camping mm-hmm. trip when they're all just um, just acting very loving to each other, mm-hmm. and that's whenever she's heartbroken. Uh, really, really, I'm sure, just a heartbreaking experience, but yeah, the only way that he could compartmentalize everything was through the lens of filmmaking. And... Yeah, he did it so great. I said it again, or I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, but the ending with him meeting a director and getting probably the best pep talk of his life was so, so hypnotizing to watch. I will watch it for forever and always. And that last shot, oh man, what a what a mic drop of a moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, probably my last, my favorite last shot of any movie of the year Probably in the last few years, honestly. It's very mm-hmm. good. Very well done. Anyway, let's move on to our number one. Celluloid Jam's number one film of 2022 is Everything, Everything Everywhere, Everywhere All at Once. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. If you can imagine it, somewhere out there, it exists. I haven't stopped thinking about this movie since we first saw it in March of this year. My goodness, it is everything that a movie can be. Not Mm -hmm. should be, but every single thing that you can try and do with the medium, this movie is trying it. Mm -hmm. It's a story about a an older woman played by Michelle Yeoh who is running a laundry shop and she is getting audited by a tax person or her um what would you say uh, accountant played by Jamie Lee Curtis she's an auditor for yes. the IRS yeah yes and through a circumstance of events she learns that there are other versions other universes alternate realities where different paths she paths she could have chosen in her life uh, start to make their own realities and Another version of her husband, uh, played by Kiwu Kwan, you might remember him as Short Round in Indiana Jones, uh, comes and says that she is the most powerful version of herself in any universe across this multiverse, and so he needs her help to try and set things in this universe right. 
Um, you also learn a lot about her daughter. Joy is another key role in why the multiverse is collapsing and just so much to talk about, so much I don't want to give away if you haven't had the chance to see it. It is just, there are so many scenes to talk about. Uh, what did you yeah. think? Uh, it was a movie that made me say, the movies are back, baby. Mm-hmm. After, you know, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, there were so many good movies in 2022 that we couldn't narrow it down to 10 or 15. We had to do 20. And even that, I had some that I felt like I was like really, oh man, I wish I could get the menu. I wish I could talk about the menu. I wish I could talk about Pearl. Like there were still movies I wanted to hit uh, to discuss. And that's very different than 2021. 2021 had some good movies. They had some great movies, but even the movies that were quote unquote great were great in this way that I found to be incredibly mediocre. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like even the great movies, their greatness wasn't, it didn't stick with me. It didn't like nothing about it. What what are you, what are you, you're disagreeing with me? Yeah, I, I'll say that the output of great movies was low. That's how I'll put it. I wouldn't say the great movies that came out in the year weren't like necessarily mediocre in terms of greatness, but I can see where you're coming from. There wasn't that many great movies in the year. No, I don't even remember what my favorite movie of last year was. Um, because, well, I think it may, well, maybe it was like the Mitchells versus the Machines. I like that. Was, but honestly, yeah. like, if I was to do, like, we couldn't have done a top 20 last year. We couldn't have done right, top 15. Right. I don't even think I would have been enthusiastic about a top 10. Like, because mm-hmm. nothing really hit for me last year, even the great stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and watching everything everywhere at once, it really made me say, wow, the movies are back, baby. Uh-huh. The movies are back. Yeah. The movies are back. Because they were not here. Obviously, our whole podcast is about how much they sucked in 2020. And then, even though there were there were better movies of the good ones in 2020 than I feel like there were in 2021. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is everything here all at once is what brought it back for me. I was like, whoa, the movies. I was excited again. It's a wacky movie. It's an insane movie. It has some tributes to things I love. Like Wong Kar Wai movies. You know, obviously, as Zach mentioned, they're going to all these different universes. There's one that's just straight up like the Wong Kar Wai universe, <laughs> practically got that like choppy frame rate and the voiceover. Oh my gosh, all good. Um, and I and a lot of the wackier stuff I don't even want to reveal because it's so funny when you yeah. see it for the first time. There's so many laughs, um, so creatively done. I don't know. I kind of there's the movie has like when it first came out, everybody loved it so much, and now we're circling around to it having haters. Uh-huh. I don't resonate with the haters at all Mm -hmm. i don't um there's some movies where i'm like i see where you're coming from but this one i'm just like i think you just have the haters have completely different tastes in film than what i do Mm -hmm. they're like oh this is just like a bunch of yeah you like movies they're just a bunch of like candy being fed to you blah 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 Mm -hmm. sure i don't know (laughs) i like a lot of movies (laughs) yeah and it adds to the enjoyment of this one. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's maybe not for everybody. Like, I feel like yeah. if I recommended this one to my my mom, she probably wouldn't like it. Because uh-huh. it is so out there and mm-hmm. wild. But I don't think it's a bad movie in any respect at right. all. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think... Like, people who don't like it, that's fair. That's your taste in film. But people who say it's a bad movie, I don't agree whatsoever. I can't agree with you at all. Yeah, agreed. Oh, man. I guess that's a better way of of saying, like, haters, fine. But people who say it's bad, no. Wrong. Objectively. Wrong. wrong. 
I remember just sitting there in the movie theater excited because I loved these two Dan boy, the Danielses, mm. and their last movie, Swiss Army Man, which was another irreverent movie with the wildest pitch you can imagine for a movie. Um, but I was excited for it, and I just remember sitting in the movie theater, and as I sat there, I thought, oh, this is an instant classic scene. This is something that people are going to be talking about for years. Like, do you remember the first time you saw Wayman starting to fight? Um, a big trigger for, like, having the skill set of another multiverse, multiverse version of yourself was to do something outrageous. And you remember how he has to give himself a finger cut? Or a uh, paper cut yes, in between it, the wedges, like <laughs> and it's like a it's like an action shot of the blood like on the card, and I'm just like oh my god, that's gonna stick with me. Uh, the reveal of the hot dog fingers, oh my god, how could you forget? I feel like that's a big spoiler. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my only thing that maybe I don't even think I don't like this about this movie, but if there's like one little thing that almost doesn't work but still works in this movie is the fact that the real villain all along was just trauma i think that's something that a lot of movies have been doing the last few years and the more i see it the more i'm like oh let's get a real villain in here Uh that's why i really like avatar the way of the water (laughs) like not like the villain in that movie is just a villain sure he has motivations but it's not deep yeah yeah (laughs) nothing deep about it um Whereas this one, it takes that idea of, you know, the real villain is just trauma all along, mm-hmm. but sort of, but creates like a physical manifestation of that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that works really well too. Mm-hmm. Like of all the movies to do that, they're one of the ones doing it the best. I agree. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. It really did bring googly eyes back into fashion as well. Mm-hmm. I remember when it came out, they were uh, in a... In our place of work, so many little objects started getting <laughs> googly eyes on them because that's what Wayman's character does, and we actually had to put a stop to that. And I remember reading an article saying that there was a googly eyes shortage in in just shopping in general because so many people were getting them and purchasing them online, going to little craft stores. Oh man, yeah, there's so many other things I could say about this movie, spoiling bigger gags than just the hot dog. Hot dogs, I could talk about rocks, I could talk about chefs, I could (laughs) talk about the poodle. Mm. Do you remember? Oh, Jenny Slate's in this one too, yeah. She is in this one, yeah, it was a great year for her. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, solid year for her and Day 24. Like you said, this is also a movie that might not be for everybody because it is so wacky and out there. But as of when we're recording this, there's a big push for it to get a lot of Oscar love. Can you see this winning Best Picture? No, I think in a movie, in a year like this where there's so many movies about filmmaking, mm-hmm. everything every wall at once doesn't have a chance for Best Picture. I do mm-hmm. think uh, it has a good shot for Best Actress, even if it's just Ooh. nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like we could pull a win for Michelle Yao. Mm-hmm. I she's, agree. Very, she's very good. She's playing so many like different roles mm-hmm. um, in the film. Supporting actor? Yeah, yeah, supporting actor. Could see that. Uh, editing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Visual effects. Because it's like, again, a, cra- a crazy, wacky movie, but it's edited together well enough that I still understand everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. I agree. I love that it is getting this much love and this much push for prestigious awards mm-hmm. in a movie where one of the saddest moments or the most gut-punching moments of the movie 
is a silent scene only showed through text. Mm -hmm, And, oh man, that scene also, I remember being in the theater for that and just thinking, oh man, this is a classic scene already. And finally, I think the last thing I'll say on it um, is Stephanie Sue. Stephanie Sue, who plays the daughter. I loved her in her Broadway days because she's in musicals that I love. Like she's in one called Be More Chill where she plays a wacky high school character. She's also in the SpongeBob musical Mm -hmm. as well as um, Karen, Plankton's computer wife. Mm -hmm. And in this one, she has so many moments to shine. Her big entrance uh, for her villain archetype is so great. And if, um, yeah, she's excellent in the movie. One more thing I forgot to mention. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, how the effects for this movie, while they might not have been the most eye-popping, they were definitely creative, and they were only done by seven people. A mm. team of seven VFX artists. I think uh, the Daniels are also there. They had to learn a lot of their techniques from scratch or YouTube channels, too. And I think that... That is such a testament to this movie's creativity in pushing boundaries. So that was our list. Yeah. Yeah, that was our year in 2022. My concluding thoughts are I respect Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Because it's clearly, you know, a well-made movie. But I hate Pinocchio. I hate him. hate that little guy. (laughs) And I won't... endure any film with him as a character. What about Except Shrek? for Shrek. Yeah, I was going to say Shrek too. <laughs> also, Once Upon a Time, I feel like, does Pinocchio pretty well because you meet him after he's a real boy. <laughs> I don't like that. Well, don't he's like an that adult. He's an adult. I don't so. like that. I still don't like that. <laughs> I, I don't want to know what this adult man and his, like, weird, traumatic childhood. <laughs> so, you know, in Once Upon a Time... Emma Swan gets sent to... Oh, hell no. <laughs> We're not ending our top 2022 with Pinocchio Once Upon a Time backstory. I'm shutting that down immediately. And Pinocchio is charged with taking care of her in the real world, but then he realizes it's hard because he's like 12 and he's she's a baby. No! So then he abandons her. <laughs> then he grows up and is really guilty about it because he's starting to turn to wood again. He's like... <laughs> 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 oh my god see that's oh a twist god. on the character I can appreciate mm. alright well <laughs> anyway thank you for listening if you're still here at this point at the end uh, we appreciate you listening um, go watch all of these movies if you have the time they're all so so worth watching Pinocchio have a Pinocchio thanks for listening we'll be back in three years Maybe or sooner, we'll see.